0: so here we go let's get somebody to shut those back doors when everybody gets in here please that would help me the best i can tell the bible reveals 35 different parables of jesus and the reason i say the best i can tell there are some people that say this is a parable and i I don't know if that's a parable or not but and so there's a lot of crossovers between the gospels Um, a parable let me give you the definition as we start a comparison of earthly and heavenly things. Uh, I grew up with this definition in the church an earthly story that with a heavenly meaning, a physical story that can uh, explain heaven, or at least partly explain heaven. It is my goal to cover all 35 of these parables in this 12 week root session. I'm going to try to do it in the order in which they were recorded as much as possible that you can detect by the chronology of Scripture. Um, For example, the Gospels don't reveal any parables that we can tell, and these are rough numbers, in the first year of Jesus' ministry. But the parables increased as he began teaching more and more. He used more and more parables. Um, so I'm trying to—I went through and, and broke them down the best I could, uh, using a lot of information to try to go in order in which they might have been taught. Um, what you're going to find—where did I come up with 35? There's 23 in Matthew, Mark has 10, Luke has 10, and I know there's some discussion about what's a parable and what's not a parable. But in the context that I did it, John had no parables. Uh, If you've read the Gospel of John, John's Gospel is totally different anyway. He takes a totally different direction. So I would need to cover 2.91 parables per week, and I don't know how to do .91. So we'll do three or four and uh, see how we can finish it up. Uh, Here's what we're doing, and this is important. This entire 12 weeks will be to search for the eternal heavenly message that Jesus has buried inside of some earthly stories. And when I say buried inside, you're going to figure out in a minute why I say that. Everybody's not going to get it, but I hope you do. So I'm going to pray. Father, we begin a journey tonight. It looks like there's around 200 of us in here, and we're going to start a journey through your parables, through the teachings of Yeshua Messiah, our Savior, our King, and I pray. Uh, with all my heart that you will open our minds to understand the Scriptures. We want to be in the group that understands this completely, as much as humanly possible, so that we might see everything you're wanting to reveal to us in your Holy Word. So Lord, uh, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, as we start tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, this is a great one to start with too, Jesus' parable of the new cloth on an old garment, and it's mixed together, we'll call it one, of a new wine in old wineskins. Okay? Mark 8, Mark 2 verse 18, once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Now, let, let's kind of set the stage, give you the context. John's disciples, those who were following John the Baptist, they, they were um, following Jewish law and they were doing quite a bit of fasting. The Pharisees, the religious Jews, they were doing fasting. <clears throat> so here's these bunch of people and they're doing a lot of fasting, and they, obviously they're not doing it secretly because people can tell they're doing it, which is another problem. So uh, what they're doing is they're doing something they're already messed up. They're putting Jesus on the same level as John and on the same level as the Pharisees. In other words, what they do, you ought to be doing, because if they're doing it, you should do it. They don't know who he is, do they? They still don't know who he is. So, Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and... Then, then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with a new cloth? Now, when I read that, I get this grin on my face because I'm seeing these Pharisees going, what? Who would patch uh, old clothing with a new cloth? We ask you why you're not fasting. Why are you bringing up? You see, here's the essence of a parable. He's going to use an earthly illustration to reveal this hidden heavenly meaning. And some people are going to get it. Some people aren't going to get it. I think in the beginning, they're not going to get it. So, besides, who would patch old clothing with a new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. What well, Jesus is telling, I'll give you a hint, something really new is coming. And I doubt you're going to be able to handle it. That's inside of here, okay? And no one, here comes the second example. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both Be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. He's saying it again in a different way. Not a shirt with a hole. Something really new is coming. Now, the context is what? They're fasting, and they're trying to push Jesus into the same level as Pharisees and John John the Baptist's disciples. So they really don't know who he is. First, this clears up whether or not we in the church age should be fasting. He said, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So church, should there be times in your life, in my life, in the church's life that we fast in our effort to seek after the will of God? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. I don't have time to get into all that in detail, but yeah, yeah. There have been times in my life where I have fasted for quite a bit of time, and uh, that's important still today. Jesus connects this bridegroom fasting story to our first parable about cloth and wineskins. They can't fast while the groom is with them. So Jesus is already talking about the fact that I'm here, but I won't be here for long. But someday the groom will be taken away from them. So what's he revealing? revealing. You know, it won't be long, I'm going to leave here. Are they getting that? Of course they're not going to get that. And then they will fast. What's he announcing? Something new's coming, you're probably not going to be able to handle it, and then I'm going to leave and it'll change things when I'm gone. Jesus is revealing that something new is coming, something so big, so transformational that the old system will not be able to handle the change. And when I say the old system, the traditional Judaism that the Pharisees, even the disciples of John the Baptist, they're probably going to struggle with this, this transformational change. The Jewish people are going to struggle with the change. The traditional Jewish systems, what started this conversation? <clears throat> we have rules about fasting, about eating, about not eating, about doing all kinds of things. The Jewish, listen carefully. Here's where the the parable starts to unfold. The traditional Jewish system is the old cloth with a hole in it. Are you with me? It's the old cloth, and let's kind of call it a shirt to make it easier to understand. And the shirt's got a hole in it. So you would think that logically, if I got an old shirt with a hole in it, I could just put a patch on it, right? That'll take care of it no if you just try to place the new patch jesus over the traditional way it's going to tear apart leaving a bigger hole than before so jesus is what he's using this physical story to reveal this this heavenly uh reality so there's a hole in the shirt the shirt is the jewish uh law is it working no, it's not working. Why? All it does is reveal their sin. It doesn't save anybody, not in itself. It just, it's not working. There's a hole in it. So just putting Jesus over the hole, is that going to fix it? It's not going to fix it. Jesus is, so there's the first cloth illustration. <clears throat> now, then it goes even bigger. He takes it a step further. And, and listen, here's the thing. They would understand cloth and they would understand a patch of cloth and that you can't put a new cloth on an old one because uh, unlike the technology of today, the they don't pre-shrink the material and, and it would rip apart the cloth. They understood wineskins, and wineskin would be a leather, sewn leather uh, a device that would be able to stretch as the wine ferments. It could swell up like a balloon. But once something has swollen like a balloon and gone to its swollen out condition, you can't go put new wine in it again because it's already reached its maximum um, swelling, if you want to call it that. They they understood this. His whole concept of what they're going to get is the physical side. What they're not going to get is the spiritual story. But he's going to tell them anyway. Jesus is the new wine. And you can't put new wine in an old wineskin any more than you can take a new piece of cloth and cover a hole of an old shirt. Why? It's too big. What's happening is too new. It's too transformational for that. Um, Jesus is the new wine. It won't be possible to pour him into the old wineskin, the traditional Jewish System because it will explode the old wineskins because it can't handle this much change. Jesus' blood. Now, 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 it's interesting that he's using wine. Jesus' blood is what? He, he tells us later, he's the, the new covenant. He's the new covenant. The traditional Jewish system, the old cloth and the old wineskins, was the original covenant. So I've got two covenants. We've got the old covenant and we've got the new covenant. Jesus was going to replace the old covenant with a new covenant. He's not going to overlay it with a patch. He's going to do away with it and start over. Listen, this is so important if you're going to understand this first parable. A patch would be continued to use the original. Mm -mm. He's going to push it out and do it new. That's why you can't put a patch on the shirt, and you can't just um, continue with the old wineskin. It's going to bust. It won't be able to handle it. Why do I say that? Okay? Let's pause in the parable. Let's go to Hebrews 8, verse 6. The Bible translates the Bible. But now, this is in the church age. Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. You see, we got two scenes the old and the new. Jesus has a ministry far superior than the old priesthood. He is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. So we got a new covenant, we got better promises than the old covenant. In the first covenant, if the first covenant had been faultless, no holes in the shirt. There would be no need for a second covenant, a patch over the hole in the shirt, to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with Judah. That's the new wine. Are you with me? Every now and then, just shake your head like this. It'll help me. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. So what's wrong? That first one's not working. It doesn't need a patch on it. It's got to be undone and redone. Okay? Are you with me? Verse 10. But this is the new covenant. I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. Something in the past was on the outside. What's going to happen in the future will be on the inside. It won't be a patch on the shirt. It'll be something on the inside. Listen. The new covenant I will make with my people on that day says, Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. It will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And when God says, when God speaks of a new covenant, It means he has made the first one, what? Say it out loud. Obsolete. This is not a patch on a shirt thing, is it? I will make the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and it will soon disappear. This is why many of the Jewish people couldn't accept Jesus. He was the new wine and the old wineskins couldn't expand enough to handle him. They would burst open. They couldn't handle him. He was so different than everything, because in their whole religious scheme, everything was external. And here he comes and he's internal. He's not just external, 613 rules about what you can and cannot do. He wants to come inside of you and and, and transform your heart. I don't want to get ahead of myself. This new wineskin is death to our old self. That's why it's internal. It's spiritual death. This is a radical transformation, not a patch over top of your old lives. This is this parable. Listen, this is not about shirts. It's not about patches. It's not about wine. It's not about leather expansion limits. What's it about? The kingdom of heaven. The savior of the world. Now, you think they're getting it? I hope you're getting it. Because that's what we're here for. This is a new life. This is new creation. This is what it means to be born again. Death to the old self and the start over of a new life. So, let me give you an example of that. Jesus reveals this radical transformation to the traditional Jewish system Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, here's a guy named Nicodemus. We don't know a whole lot about him except he was a he was a leader. He was a Pharisee. And that means if he's a Pharisee, he's the the highest in the religious, religious people. And, in other words, he, he lived under strict obedience to the external Jewish law. External Jewish law. It was all external. Okay? It was all rules on the outside. And here's what Jesus does to this Pharisee. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So something's got Nicodemus' attention, right? We all know God's with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you were born again. I, I laugh because you think you're going to see, it's a, he, he's, he still can't get it. It's the old patch on the shirt, new wineskin thing. It's... He can't see this. Not yet. Not yet. I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? He's only what? He's thinking of this. He can only see the physical side. And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and born of spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit, okay, here we go. He has just introduced the inside. Humans can only reproduce humans, and humans deal with the outside. You can't fix your own heart. You can't change the inside of you because the inside of you is you. You can't fix the inside of you because it'd be you fixing you, and if you could fix you, we wouldn't need a Savior. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to this new life, spiritual life. So, to Nicodemus, he says, don't be surprised when I say, you got to be born again. So let's put that word. You've got to have something happen in your life that radically transforms you from the inside out, not from the outside in. And then he does this. I'm always, I love this verse. The wind blows. So if Nicodemus wasn't already busy, he's going to be now. Jesus says, and the wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. You can't explain it. Well, that's why they're struggling with it. Verse 9, how are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, you see the essence of a parable? If you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? What's a parable? It's the earthly things and the heavenly things coming together in a way in which they reveal the heavenly things. If you can't believe me about earthly things, how can you believe me if I try to take those earthly things and reveal the heavenly things to you? It's the same concept. There's a shirt that's got a hole in it. Do you understand why you can't put a patch on it? You can't take new wine, put it in old wineskins. Do you understand how that reveals the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is about to do on the earth? It's moving everything from external now to internal. And he reveals it's born again. It's the Spirit. Something's going to happen on the inside of you that is way bigger than any of you. Verse 13. And then he says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned. To which Nicodemus would have probably said, hmm, okay. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life." Now you know Nicodemus isn't getting it there, and neither was, I'm sure, anybody else at this stage. But when you look back, man, all these pieces are when the Son of Man is lifted up. uh, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, if you go study that story. As the Son of Man is lifted up and the serpent is lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And whoever looks upon the serpent, whoever looks upon the Son, will be healed. And then you see, um, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. And then everybody knows 16. For God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. How? Because when Jesus came and died on the cross, He was lifted up. And when He was lifted up, He opened a doorway, the only doorway ever opened on earth for you and I to be born and start over. To be born again. Why? Jesus told His disciples, it's very good for you that I leave. Because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He's not going to come and live on the outside. While Jesus was here, He was external. He was on the outside, He was a man on the outside. But when He came back in the form of the Spirit on the, on the day of Pentecost, He's not coming on the outside, is He? Where's He coming? He came inside of people, and they started talking other languages, and they started doing things that no human being could do. Because on that day, everything started new. These people started new lives. Let me give you a physical example today. I've studied a whole lot about growing churches or or starting churches. You know it's easier to start a new church than to reform a dead traditional church? Why? Let me say it again. You know it's easier to start a new church than to transform an old traditional church. Why? You cannot put new wine in old wineskins. Has anything really changed? And I say a dead traditional church, a church that's just doing what the Pharisees were doing. Everything is external, refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside and bear fruit for the kingdom. That's not a dead church, that's an alive church. But America is filled with dead traditional churches that just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, expecting somehow or another to produce fruit when they've never produced fruit. You know why? Because they've never been born again. It would be a lot easier to just go start a new church than to go into that setting and reform that church. Why? The same problem with the Jews. They were so stuck in their own traditions and their external repetitions that if you, pour, if you tried to put the new wine in their old wineskin, somebody's going to bust. They're going to bust you. It won't work. Okay. These other two are easier to explain. I'm happy about that. Parable number two, the divided kingdom. This parable of Jesus reveals the spirit war in heaven. I hope you've been coming to church here long enough that you understand that. Jesus is going to explain there's a spirit war that's living itself, playing itself out on the earth. So there's a physical reality that explains the spiritual reality. Mark 3, verse 20. Now, I need to give you some context. If you read the context right before verse 20, Jesus has been publicly casting out demons. He has been publicly... In, People, all kinds of people are watching him, believers, unbelievers are watching him walk up to a person and say, unclean spirit, get out, and they go shrieking out of him. So there's physical evidence of a spirit realm inside of a physical person. So you've got spirit and physical. Spirits are jumping out of physical people. Okay, there's your background. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't find time to eat. When his family, now this is Jesus' brothers. I, I don't think it includes his mother, not in the context of what's about to be said. But the Bible says clearly that until the end, until the death, burial, resurrection, you know Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him? Do you know that? I remember saying that in church years ago. Some guy called me down and said, Where'd you get that? I it The Bible. You ought to read that. When his family heard what was happening, what's happening? He's he's casting out these demons, okay? When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. I want you to picture Jesus' brothers and they're, they're, well, let me just say, he's out of his mind. That's what it says. They tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. So let's let's set the stage. So we got Jesus' family members. They think, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. Let's get him out of here. You got the religious folks and say, no, he's not crazy. He's possessed with demons. And Jesus standing in the middle going, Why did I come down here for these people? (laughs) Verse 23. Here comes the parable. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. Here's the parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? I love this part. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. And let me illustrate it further so we're getting like an extra parable here. Who is powerful enough to enter a house of a strong man like Satan? and plunder his goods. Y'all see this, the heavenly and the physical? You see the earthly and the, the heavenly? You got Satan who, you can't see him, right? He's a spirit being, but you got houses and you got people. So we'd see houses and people. You see what Jesus is doing? He's drawing the spiritual and the physical together to try to show something here. But not everybody's going to get it. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone stronger. Someone who could tie him, tie Satan up, and plunder Satan's house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying, Why does he say, what's the, what, why does he bring up the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of plundering Satan? He told them this because they said he's possessed with an evil spirit. Now, I need to get this first point across. I have always read this statement of Jesus and wondered if he's like, got this big smile on his face when he says it, because he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? So I want you to get a visual picture here, and let's put you in it. How do you throw yourself out of a room? (laughs) That's why I think it's funny, because they're accusing him of throwing, of using the power of Satan to cast out the power of Satan. It'd be like me pitching myself through this back curtain. It's not possible for you to throw yourself out. You can't do it. You can walk out, but you can't throw yourself out. You see, that's that's why Jesus is using that as an example. Jesus uses this statement as an illustration, as a a parable. How would you cast out yourself? That's what he's really being accused of. You're casting out yourself. This reveals what? spirit war. There are two spirits. And these two spirits are at war. This is Jesus' heavenly meaning message revealed later through the Apostle Paul. And, and Jesus is trying to clearly describe the battle that people need to see. There's one on each side. And somebody, once after I talked about there's a Holy Spirit and unholy spirit, uh, somebody questioned me one time, why do you say singular? Why do you say singular? And I want you, everybody understand why I say singular. There's one only, there's Jesus, the holy, and Satan, the unholy. Why? When Jesus prays his prayer before the Father, before he goes to the cross, what's he say? Protect them from the holy one, the unholy one. Protect them from the unholy one. Jesus describes him as singular. I do not ask you to take my disciples away from the world. I ask you to protect them from the unholy one. One, singular. So there is one Satan. There is one Christ. There are multiple demons under the authority of Satan, but there's only one head of those multiple demons. Jesus is, and and what are they doing? You got Jesus and you got Satan. The absolute I don't want to say opposites. That's the wrong word. That, that's the spirit war. Jesus and Satan. And they did just accuse Jesus of what? Throwing himself out. They accused him of being Satan. He's casting out demons. So the, the Pharisees are acknowledging the demonic realm. But they're putting Jesus in the demonic realm. Missing the entire spirit battle altogether. So, the Apostle Paul tries to draw the same distinction. You and I as a church will never be successful in the church until you understand that you're in a war, until you understand that there's a spirit war. Here we go. A final word, Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of whom? Uh, The devil. He's in charge. But we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. That means the battle, as much as it looks like it, is not with somebody down the road from you, or your boss, or your spouse, or your, your, you know, another nation that is coming at us with, with tanks. That's not the ultimate battle. That's not where it originates from. It's not flesh and blood. Our battle's not with flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers-listen carefully-authorities in an unseen world. How do you fight somebody you can't see? evil authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of of evil. And then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. After the battle. Listen, my, my greatest desire for the church is after the battle we're still standing. We put on the whole armor of God Understanding that you and I are in a war, and people are going to die in this war, and people are going to be lost in the battle. But he says this. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all these things, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Here it is. I got my sword. You got your sword? Jesus then adds a second illustration. So I'm trying to connect the parable to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Then Jesus adds his second illustration. He says, let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. So who is strong enough to bind up Satan? You can't see him. The Pharisees would admit, you can't see him. So how in the world are you, could anybody bind up a spirit power that you cannot see? How? How can you plunder his goods? Jesus is asking a real question, not a rhetorical question. He's asking something to force them to, to address the spirit war. Who is strong enough to bind up Satan? So let's go to 1 John. The Bible interprets the Bible. In First John it says, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you, the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit that lives in the world. John is revealing this. There's a spirit war. You've already won the battle. There's a victory. What brought the victory? The Spirit on the inside of you is greater than the Spirit on the outside of you. What was Jesus casting out? A Spirit. Where was the Spirit before he cast him out? On the inside. Who can do it? One. Who can cast out the Spirit? He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. How does this scene start tonight? How does this scene start? There is his brothers thinks he's out of his mind. The Pharisees thinks he's he's working for Satan. And here he stands as the single force in the universe that can walk up to you and see the spirit inside of you of Satan and have the power to make it leave. One person. And you would think they would rejoice. His brothers try to get him away from the crowd because they think he's nuts. The Pharisees call him Satan himself. But he's the only one who can actually separate the spirit realm. Removing the spirit of Satan. Verse 5. Those people belong to this world. Now that's those who have the evil spirit inside of them. And by the way, what's the default location? What's the default? When I say default, are you born, did you get born with the Holy Spirit in you? You know, some people think they did. I worry about you. <laughs> what's the default? If I, okay, let, let, me, let me reword the sentence. If I am not born again. If I don't receive this new life, this new creation, this inhabitation of the Spirit of Christ, if I do not have that happen, then what's the default? If What am I? I have the other Spirit. What's choice C? There is no choice C. You're not neutral. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you think that came from Christ? We have all sinned. So we, what's the default location? We belong to this world. When we're born into this world, we belong to this world. The default location, which means my natural uh, inhabitation, my natural habitation is the spirit of Antichrist lives in me. Who can cast him out? Can I cast him out? Can you cast him out? Verse 5, those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to God. That is how we know if someone has what? Here we go. There's two things, two choices the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. The spirit war is real, and one day Jesus is going to cast Satan into hell. The Bible has made it clear the spirit war is real. One day the war will end when Jesus casts Satan into hell. Those who belong to this strong man Satan will go to hell with Satan. They will they belong to him so they will get what he gets. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's always curious about this one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comment at the end of this parable is what happens when a person rejects the spirit power of Jesus inside of them, the only power to overcome Satan. For that there is no forgiveness. Let me say it again. There is a time in our lives in which the Spirit will call us. If you reject, that spirit is calling you for a single purpose. That spirit of Christ is calling you. And in that moment, he is offering you the supernatural power to cast out the demon, the spirit of Satan that is residing in your life, which is why you are lost. And that is your default location. And when he calls you, The rejection of the Holy Spirit is the denial of the person of Christ himself. And for that, there will be no forgiveness. So let me give you an example. Let's say that in your life you heard a sermon, you heard a preacher, the Holy Spirit came, he he quickened your heart and you knew, but you walked out because you just uh, said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And you die in a car wreck and you, you stand before God... What could possibly be your forgiveness? What, what, what? For that, there is no forgiveness. What? Because the forgiveness is the blood of Christ that you just said no to. It, there is no other forgiveness. There is no. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject the person of Christ that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. It is to deny him and who he is. This is the spiritual message of Jesus. You want it? You can't cast out Satan. The sin nature can't cast out the sin nature. A dying person can't fix death. You can't cast it out. A person under the curse cannot cast out the curse. You understand? You are the problem. You you don't have the problem in you. You are the problem. You can't fix the problem because it's you. You that's why it has to be him. Colossians 1.25 God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. So what is the secret? Christ lives inside of you. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory, the only assurance you and I are ever going to get. Here comes the last one, and quite frankly, the biggest one tonight, the sower of the seed. Mark 4, verse 1, once again, Jesus began teaching by the lake shore. A very large crowd soon gathered around Him, so He got into the boat. And then He sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Here it comes. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on the footpath and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil and uh, with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, notice tonight's class is roots, it didn't have deep roots and it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants so that they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop of thirty, sixty, and a hundred times as much as had been planted. Then Jesus said, and I wonder how many people would read over this sentence, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anybody know why he put that at the end of the parable? This is one of the most quoted parables of Jesus. And it reveals a powerful spiritual truth that many still don't have ears to hear or they refuse to hear. Here we go. The seed is the Word of God. This is it. I want you all to understand something. I hold in my hand the seed in Jesus' parable. It is the Word of God. It is the Bible. The seed, the Word, is supernatural. It is alive. And here we go. Listen. It is Perfect. It produces fruit every time it reaches good soil. Why? Because the soil's good. No, nope, no, nope, the seed's perfect. Listen. In Hebrews four twelve it says, "For the word of God is alive." So that means the seed is alive, and it's powerful. And it is sharper than the sharpest two edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit. This seed cuts something on the inside of me. When I read this, or when this seed goes through my my eyes, my ears, enters my heart, it does something that nothing else has the power to do. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes my innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from this seed. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he's the one to whom we are accountable. The beautiful part of this parable is Jesus does something. He doesn't do it with all the parables, but he does it with this one. He breaks it down to his disciples who have ears to hear and understand. So after after he tells the story to the crowd, he takes his disciples off to the side, and here's what happens. Verse 10, later when Jesus was alone with his 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around him, they asked him uh, what the parables meant. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. This is big, okay? I'm going to probably read this every week in the 12-week series. You are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders. Hmm. Why? So the scriptures might be fulfilled when they see, outsiders, When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. Hmm. And when they hear what I say, they will not understand. Hmm. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. He who has ears to hear, let him understand. Then Jesus said to them, If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, and he's talking about the sower... If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand the other parables? So here he's going to explain it. Listen carefully. The farmer plants seeds by taking God's word to others. What is that? That's evangelism. That's preaching. That's roots classes. That's you going across the street and talking to your neighbor about the Bible. What? That's the farmer plant seed by what? Taking God's words to others. So what's the seed? God's word. Jesus said, The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. So here's my question. Everybody listen. This person is represented by a footpath. They heard the message. Satan comes and at once, he he snatches that seed out of that person's heart. Will that seed... Produce a harvest. Oh, okay. It's been snatched. So the seed, is there a problem with the seed? No. Who got the seed? Satan got the seed. So that person, okay, that's the footpath person. Let's go to the number two. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. Hey, hey, this is an awesome... Sermon preacher, right, immediately with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, and you're in a roots class. And since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away. So if you're in the room today and you don't even think that happens, you need to shut out this part. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's Word. So here's my second question. This rocky soil second person, do they produce fruit? Does this seed produce a harvest for the sower? Does it? No. Why? They didn't last long enough. They didn't last long enough for the seed to produce a harvest. This seed is lost. Is there a problem with the seed? No. Seed's perfect. Number three, verse 18. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's Word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. They've been deceived, distracted, dissuaded, discouraged, and disheartened. Is there any fruit? No fruit is produced. So we got... Three different seeds thrown in three different locations and we got zero fruit. Right? Right? Is this complicated? If you, Jesus says, if you can't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any parable? That's his words, not mine. Do you get it? Is there any fruit? No, no, no. 20. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's Word. What, what's the key of all of these? The seed. Well, what is the seed? Yeah. He, they hear and accept God's Word and they produce a harvest of 30, 60, and 100 times as much as has been planted. Now, now, first, before I ask the real big question, why does the farmer sow seeds? This is really big. So why, why in this parable, why does the farmer sow seeds? He's wanting a harvest. The only reason he's sowing seeds is he's wanting a harvest, right? Are we struggling with that? Anybody struggle with that? Nah, I just think he's just, he's exercise. It's not exercise. He wants a harvest. That's why he's sowing seeds. So here's my question for everybody here tonight. Here's my question for those who have ears to hear. There are four types of people in Jesus' parable. Are all four of them saved? We got the footpath people, we got the rocky soil people, we got the thorny people, and we got the good soil people. I'm asking you, because Jesus says if you can't understand this one, you'll never understand any of them. Are all of these are they saved? Are four? Because you know what, every one of them. The first one may be marginal, because the first one, you know, Satan snatched it pretty quick. I don't know what the seed did in that person, but the second one and the third one both received the seed with joy. They received it. Something happened. Are they saved? Somebody say, well, that's-that's what you think about this? No, they're not saved. They are lost. They're lost. You need to come to grips with this parable. They are lost. Is there a problem with the seed? No. The problem is with the soil. Did some of those four have salvation and lose it? Can you forfeit the Word that was sent to save you? Can you forfeit? Because this is one of these giant spiritual divides in the church. Can you forfeit the Word that was actually sent to save you? If the Word is Jesus, listen, here's my answer. If the Word is Jesus and Jesus is the Word, the Word became flesh. If the Word is Jesus and you receive the Word by faith with joy can you then reject the Word and Jesus and be lost? What or when would a person blaspheme the Holy Spirit in this scene? What or when would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let's say, I don't want to answer the question. I want Jesus to answer the question with another agricultural analogy. In John 15 verse 1. Jesus says this, Jesus tells this story, I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. Why do you sow seeds? He cuts off every branch. My father, Jesus, my daddy, cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do produce bear fruit so that they'll produce even more fruit. You have already been pruned and purified by what? Say it out loud. The message. You've already been pruned and purified by the word. The seed prunes. It prunes. Purifies, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Rightly dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit. What, What did it? The word, the seed. It's why he sows it. You've already been pruned. Here it comes, here it comes. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. And I'm going to insert two words. Now what? You've been pruned and purified. Now what? Remain in me. Church, this is the message. This is what the church isn't getting, remain in me. And I will remain in you, but you've got to remain in me. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. What was wrong with the footpath? What was wrong with the rocky soil? What's wrong with the thorns? What, what's, you, you, you cannot produce fruit if you don't remain in me. And what is me? he is the word he didn't come to bring you the word he is the word he is the word i like jesus i just don't care much for the bible you know we laugh but that's it it's the church much of the modern american church i I love jesus i don't like the bible you see Yes, I am the vine, verse 5, and you are the branches, and those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. There's the 30, the 60, the 100 times. But for apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me tell you what, you remember that story he told you? You can do nothing. What's the harvest of those first three categories? Zero, zero, zero. You can do nothing. You will have no harvest. There's nothing there. Why? There's no seed. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile and be born. What do you, burned? What do you think that means? What do you think it means? Such branches are thrown away into a pile and they're going to get burned. It's hail. But if you remain in me and my words is this complicated? You know, I read this like a child. I'm sorry. It's how I think. My words. He is the word. My words. He, he remains in me. My words remain in you. You must ask, and so you can ask for anything you want and to be granted. You know why that works? Because if he's inside of you, what you're asking for is what he wanted to give you already. Of course, he's going to give it to you. He's the one that put it in your heart to ask for it. And when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great joy to my Father, glory to my Father. Remain in me, remain in my word. Why would that be important if it's not possible to depart? The saved in Jesus' parable of the seed is the one that produces a harvest of 30, 60, and 100. Listen carefully, church. The saved in Jesus' parable of the seed, 30, 60, 100 times. It's the soil that received And remained in connection with the seed. This matches Jesus' description of the vine and the branches. The people aren't saved because they have fruit. I have never taught that. They aren't saved because they have fruit, they have fruit because they are saved. There's a difference. They are saved because they remain in the vine. The seed, the Word, is in them bearing fruit because the seed, the Word, the vine is supernatural. It is perfect. The seed, the Word, and the vine represent what? Christ in me. The only power in heaven or on earth that can cast Satan out. Christ in me. It's the only way to be saved. All the other fruitless, faithless branches are going to be thrown into the fire and be burned. Those who have ears to hear will hear and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Do you think it's a coincidence that when Jesus comes to the Apostle John in the Revelation, he talks to seven churches and to all seven churches, all seven churches, he says the same thing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear and understand what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you think it's a coincidence that that's the same sentence he put in the parable of the sower? It's the same sentence. Finally, I'm going to repeat Mark 4:10. I told you I'll probably use this in all 12 sessions. I'll let you figure out what it means. Later, when Jesus was alone with his twelve disciples and with the others who were gathered around him, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything i say to outsiders so the scriptures might be fulfilled when they see what i do they will learn nothing when they hear what i say they will not understand otherwise they would turn to me and be forgiven and then jesus said to them if you can't understand the meaning of this parable and it's a sore how will you understand all of the other parables the farmer plant seeds by taking God's Word to others. Do you see how important it is to have ears to hear and understand? There you go. There's three down, 32 to go. And I'm going to say this. I wonder how many of you will be with me when I finish 12 weeks. You know how it usually works? I'm not scolding you. I love you. You know how it usually works? I've been doing this a long time now. I'll start with about 200 and I'll finish with about 120. Why? All right, we got a P-P-P bar up there. Okay, and I'm gonna add another P and pray, all right? Pulled pork potato bar. Father, we thank you for your word. The word is you. And you are the Word. And unless you come in, no one's gonna cast out this strong man named Satan. And we will die in our sins and we'll be the, the branches that are gathered up and thrown into the fire. But you have done something marvelous. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen this glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You came down here to sow some seeds, to find some hearts that would receive by faith this marvelous seed, which is you in us. And when you come in us, Satan has to leave. So Father, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and understand what the Spirit says to the church. I pray your blessing upon the fellowship tonight, the meal, our time together your church, your bride, make us ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.